This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash right book. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. This week's Just the Right Book episode is actually a replay of an interview that I did in 2017 with Cheryl Strayed on our book, Tiny Beautiful Things. So we're going to replay it for a couple of reasons. One is it's now a very interesting TV series on Hulu. The other is it was one of my favorite interviews that I had done. Cheryl Strayed is mostly known for her book, her memoir, Wild. But Tiny Beautiful Things, which is also a book, as well as this TV series, is one of those books that I think will, if you read it, and I give it out a zillion times to people, cannot help but put you in a good mood about the state of humankind. So, here is my interview with Cheryl Strayed from 2017. Happy listening. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We are joined today by the author, memoirist, blogger, advice guru, Cheryl Strayed. As most of you probably know, she's the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, author of the New York Times bestselling Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough, and her novel, Torch. Her books have been translated into a mere 40 languages. And as I'm sure you know, Wilde was turned into an Oscar-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. Her essays have appeared everywhere, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, Salon, Tin House. Strayed has served as a co-host of the New York Times WBUR podcast called Dear Sugar, and is now the co-author of Sweet Spot Advice Column in the New York Times. All of these are impressive accomplishments, but to me, what is most impressive is the heart, sense of humanity, fearless honesty, and wisdom she brings to her writing and advice. 
As George Saunders has said, Cheryl is big-hearted, keen-eyed, lyrical, precise. And she reminds us in every line that if defeat and despair are part of the human experience, so are kindness, patience, and transcendence. Cheryl, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So, Cheryl, I'm probably one of the few people who read Tiny Beautiful Things before I read Wild. And it's through that. Yeah, it's through that book that I fell in love with you. And I was prompted to invite you on the show because now your advice column is appearing with Steve Amond in the New York Times. How'd you first get into the advice business? Wow. Well, first, I want to say thank you. You're right that usually the trajectory is you get to Tiny Beautiful Things through Wild. Um, Wild was published four months before Tiny Beautiful Things. I think of them as my kind of twin books. Mm-hmm. I was writing the the Dear Sugar column on the rumpus. Um, while I was doing edits on Wild, I was I began writing the column just after I'd finished the first draft of Wild. So they were kind of you know, born together with mm-hmm. Wild being the, the, the older sister, if you will. <laughs> but, um, you know, I came to it I, really just on a lark. There is this website called The Rumpus. And um, back in, in February of 2010, Steve Almond, who at that time was really just an acquaintance of mine. We'd, we'd met a, uh, a few times at, at writers' conferences and such and, and liked each other's work. Uh, he sent me an email and said, I'm writing this advice column under a pseudonym named Sugar and nobody's reading it. And I'm not really that interested in the form and of the advice column. And so, you know, it doesn't pay anything and it just doesn't make sense for me to keep doing it. But I thought of you because I thought maybe you'd be good at it or you'd be interested in it. And it had never occurred to me to write an advice column. I was not really a reader of advice columns or, you know, I would read, if I saw Dear Abby in the paper, I would glance at it for sure. But I wouldn't say that I I followed any any advice columns at all as a reader, but it sounded fun. I mean, what better way than to find out what people are really doing and thinking and feeling than to, you know, be on the other side of those letters. And so I just said yes as a kind of uh, side gig. And like I said, it was a gig that paid nothing. Some people think I mean that uh, in a sort of figurative way, but I mean, actually it paid zero. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it was funny. It was, I, I realized at one of my book events that I would say it pays nothing. And people, people really did think I meant like, you know, not a lot, it, not a lot, but no, I was like, no, it's, it's actually zero. But, you know, and so what happened of course, is that really it sparked my interest. And I decided to to put all of my humanity and all of my, you know, everything I'd learned as a writer uh, into that column, that it wasn't going to be a lesser form. It was going to be a literary form in in my hands and my vision. And one of the great things about not being paid to do something is you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. So I did. Well, there is barely a speech I give that I don't read one of the pieces from Tiny Beautiful Things. And the one I often read is from the first letter in Tiny Beautiful Things where you define love. Mm. Um, I I think Thank you. I'm so honored. The guy's name was Johnny. He was a guy who wasn't sure he really loved the woman he was dating. Yeah, you're right, Johnny. And I've I've met Johnny now. Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) No. And and what do you think? It's funny. So what happens, you know, many of the people now over the years, you know, they'll show up at my events and and Johnny was a very interesting one. So I was, 
I won't say what town I was in, but I was at an event after Tiny Beautiful Things had come out and I was doing a book signing and I noticed this guy kept kind of going to the back of the line. It was a long line. He kept going to the back. And I always notice those people because that means they want to they talk want to time. me about something. They want time. You know, so, but he, so he waits till last. He walks up and he says, I'm Johnny. And I say, nice to meet you, Johnny. You know, I hope, you know, I'm just chatting with him. And he says, no, no, I'm Johnny. <laughs> and I look up at him and he looks at me, you know, in this meaningful way. And I said, Johnny, and he was actually with the woman who he wrote to me about. Wow. And she said, thank you so much for saving our relationship. And after he read the column I wrote about love, he immediately uh, got in his car and drove to her place and said, I love you. Yeah. And now they're, and they're still together. Oh my God. I love that because, you know, that. So the first paragraph is, uh, Dear Johnny, the last word my mother ever said to me was love. She was so sick and weak and out of her head, she couldn't muster the I or the you. But it didn't matter. That puny word has the power to stand on its own. And then later in the piece, so I always read this as the best definition of love I've come across. It is not so incomprehensible as you pretend, sweet pea. Love is the feeling we have for those we care deeply about and hold in high regard. It can be light as the hug we give a friend or heavy as the sacrifices we make for our children. It could be romantic, platonic, familial, fleeting, everlasting, conditional, unconditional, imbued with sorrow, stoked by sex, sullied by abuse, amplified by kindness, twisted by betrayal, deepened by time, darkened by difficulty, leavened by generosity, nourished by humor, and loaded with promises and commitments that we may or may not want to keep. What better Uh, definition of love is there than that, Cheryl? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, and I think it's really important. I think that the reason that a lot of people have turned to that, I mean, when I wrote it, of course, I didn't know that um, people would pay such attention to it. But a lot of people really have um, quoted that back to me or talked to me about that paragraph. And I, and I do think it's because, you know, even though we all know that love comes in so many different forms right. and it's so complicated, I mean, that we can love somebody who's done terrible things to us or, or we can feel love for somebody we hardly know, you know, that, that, it, that it is many things. It's not just one thing. Right. And I think what I was trying to say to Johnny is like, you know, he was so bound up in this. I love so that they're together, Cheryl. Yes, I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. And I just, and it was really my letter just saying, get over it. You know, you do love her and you'll yeah. love her in a different way in 10 years if you stay together. But, you know, we don't have to, to make such a big deal out of it, this one word, you know, um, that it's a lot of things, right? Yeah. Uh, it, well, as somebody married almost 50 years, you know, I sometimes make the joke that there are days that I think Kevin and I are one person and there are days <laughs> right. that... I can't even stand the way he chooses food. <laughs> totally. Well, and what's interesting is you probably have experienced all all or most of, course. of those kinds of love with him, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Cheryl, one of the things that I'm struck by in reading, and it was funny because I read, because I read the books in, in the way that one might consider backwards, I was curious about where someone could get the kind of both kindness and wisdom and wit to answer these questions, and you were still pretty young. And then after I read Wild, 
it made me wonder to what degree did that experience of hiking the Pacific Coast Highway really imbue you with the qualities that make you such a successful, smart advice guru? You know, this is the hardest question that anyone ever asks me, because what you're essentially asking is, how did I become who I am? Mm, you know? Yeah. And I think I didn't want to say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of life's great mysteries. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, obviously my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail was a powerful experience for me, and um, it deepened my life in ways that are really profound and important. But it's not as if I was a, a different person before yeah. I hiked that trail. You were the person who took the hike. That's right. Yeah. I was the person who decided in, That's right. in the darkest moment of my life to take a hike. And so, you know, I think that we, I, I was really born to be a writer. Like, I really, I'm one of those writers that I feel like, okay, I was called to do this. And what I can tell you... Have I read that you were six when you knew you wanted to be a writer? Yes. And and it wasn't so articulate as, oh, I want to be a writer. But I knew that I I recognized the power of story Mm. and language, and it made me feel in a way that nothing else made me feel. And so, you know, I always, you know, wanted to make other people feel that way. But also what goes what goes back to the beginning is really just the person, you know, I've always been interested in what was really happening beneath the surface for people. I've always been interested in the most intimate, emotional, personal realms. And, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would have to say to me, like, okay, you can only ask each of those three questions. And then you have to stop because I would be very pro. Yeah. I would ask people, you know, inappropriate questions that they've never been asked or what we consider inappropriate, which I didn't consider inappropriate. But I would say, like, if I had met you and your husband, I might have said to you, why do you mm. really love your husband? You know, I, I would want to know. What, what, what is it? You know, what was really beneath? I just wanted to know what was yeah. what was inside of people. I mean, I, I've always been intrigued. And I always paid attention to my perception of people's emotional realities, which may be in contradiction to the way they seem to be. I've always been acutely aware of that. And I've also always, you know, just sort of cared, you know, about people. And and, and so in, in Dear Sugar, I did feel like, okay, the two most, um, I guess the two deepest parts of me have come to fruition. They've come to life because I've always wanted to help people. I have, I do have this sort of natural empathy for people and compassion like so many of us do, but you know, in in the in this dear sugar column, I found a channel for that, and that channel just happened to read to run down the course that is my other great passion, yeah. which is writing. And so I was able to actually be useful via literature. Now, are there any topics you won't touch? You know, I think that, that there are a couple of times I've received letters from women who are pregnant, and they. They want me to tell them, you know, if they should have an abortion or mm. surrender the child for adoption or keep it or, you know, and I can talk around, I can help people talk around what they might decide, but I would never tell somebody what they should do. And, um, you know, I, I do tend to not do that with other subjects as well. You know, I'm kind of like, look, I can't tell you whether you should leave your husband or not, but consider this, you know, and and I do with some of these kind of big questions like that. I'm like, listen, I can, I can help you maybe clarify some of the things you might want to consider, but I can't be the person who says, I think you mm. should do this. Because what I find in reading your letters, either the ones you, you and Steve have been writing in the New York times or in reading tiny, beautiful things is your capacity to contextualize the question for them that leaves them the freedom 
to think more broadly about what's impacting how they operate. Right. Yeah. That's, my my goal is illumination yeah. rather than instruction. And I think that you know the the old fashioned advice column that that we see usually you know like in the form of Dear Abby or Ann Landers or those columns that many people are familiar with. They are about instruction, and I and I and I don't say that by way of saying that one is superior. Uh, it's just a different thing that I'm hoping to do as a writer. And of course, that's what literature is. It seeks to tell us the truth. It seeks to illuminate. And so I do try to broaden and contextualize. I, I try to what I always sort of think of myself is instead of answering the question, actually leading the way mm. to the deeper questions that so often sit beneath the questions right. we think we're asking. This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by Better Help. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash right book. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. You know, what I wonder about is I listen to people over the years um, because I often find myself in the situation where people are bringing problems or concerns to me. And I'm always surprised at how people are, and I'm sure it's true of myself as well, are chronic in what their issues are and and how we all lack the capacity to really do the hard work or the hard thinking or the difficult steps that would effectuate change. Is it your view that people can change? I think people absolutely can change. I have no doubt about that. And, and, and you know, I've seen others change. I've seen it in my own life. But I think what you're saying is also true. And that is basically we, we each have two kinds mm. of problems. You can put you know, one problem is a sort of situational thing. You know, this has happened. You're having a conflict with a coworker um, about this or that, or, you know, your mother-in-law has moved in with you and that's, you don't want her to live with you anymore. You know, like, what do you do? That's that kind of problem. But then there are those bigger kind of, you know, mm. underlying issues that we each, that are really born of like who we are. You know, for me, for example, it's always hard for me to say no. It's, uh, this has been a lifelong struggle. And over the years, I've gotten better. I've gotten better. You know, I tend to be a people pleaser. I like to say yes because it makes people happy and they love me. And that's how I've gotten love. And over the years, I've, I've learned how to recognize that part of my 
personality and, and, and deal with it. But I think I will always be dealing with it, right? I, I will never completely overcome this part of who I am. Yeah, I remember I remember uh, a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist. We were talking about this subject because I share that uh, quality with you. And she said, you know, the problem is, Roxanne, you end up being a seducer. And normally seducers don't go on marrying everybody they've seduced. And you do. <laughs> you know, not literally, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Well, and as with anything, a lot of times, too, these character traits that we're speaking of, they they have, you know, a positive side and a negative sure. side. They have a virtue and a vice. And and so I think that also this is what I seek to do, you know, as in my work as Sugar, is just to sort of show people to themselves that mm. they, you know, these are the things that, have, you know, saying yes brings you positive things. It also brings you negative things. Like, let's just see how you know, how who you are brings good things to your life and bad things to your life and how you can kind of uh, make sense of that and manage that and make better decisions. Well, you know, that reminds me of another thing that I see as a common element in your advice. And that is you sort of love them despite their flaws and you help them understand that they, yeah, that might be a flaw that you've got, but that doesn't make you a bad person or unlovable. And it seems to me that that's the thing that people most are on a search for and can't find, you know, which, it, you know, in a cliche is being unconditionally loved. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. This is, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I always knew we, we live in a judgment culture and that many of us, you know, our impulses, you know, even though we've made some of those same mistakes, the impulse is to say you are bad or you are good. And mm. there's that very black and white kind of thinking. But we all know that that most of us, um, you know, could be condemned for a number of things we've done and praised, and and that there's always that, that you know that mix in in all of us. And and I, I'm not interested in judging people. I'm interested in talking to people about what's true. And sometimes what's true is you know you you lied to somebody or you cheated on somebody. Really, and sometimes even some of these darker questions, you know, people who who really did wrong somebody and don't know how to make amends and feel terrible about it, or who were wronged and they don't know how to heal. Mm. And so I just think, you know, the minute we re- remove judgment from the conversation is the, the minute we can actually start talking about what's real and what's true. Yeah. And I, you know, that's that's also, this is connected to, I mean, we think of this as being in the world of advice, but it's actually in the the literary world. This is this is what's interesting to me about giving advice. Is essentially, you know, this is what you do as a novelist. The reason I, how I trained for an advice columnist is I was a novelist. You know, when you write a book, you know, like a novel, you have to have characters who feel real to people, and therefore you have to have characters who are complex. Um, we don't believe anyone who's just a villain or just a saint. Really, I was really in so many ways just drawing on those skills I have. As a writer, as you know, how do you build a character on the page? You make them a real person, and so the minute you learn how to do that, or you, you, you know, you love those people, and so I do have that kind of love mm. for the people who write to me. That makes enormous amount of sense. I recently interviewed Nicole Krause. She has a new book out called Forest Dark, and she writes very philosophical. What's the meaning of life? How do we become who we are? What makes up how we? operate. And I think you're exactly right, Cheryl. I think for most of us that are obsessive readers, 
that there's always, you know, there's always the the interest in learning and the interest in being entertained or distracted and all of those things. But ultimately, I think the pleasure of reading about other lives and understanding people and developing compassion from them for them, like brilliant novelists do, teaches us how to live. That is how. This is what we mean when we say, oh, that book that book saved my life, mm. you know, which, which, you know, is said so often. And I think that it's what happened is we, we found the truth in that book or sometimes in several books, in my case, in several books. And, you know, I think, you know, there is a kind of sacred quality. I mean, people go to religion for that same kind of thing, to, to feel themselves, um, you know, in a larger sense than they do in their everyday life, to be in some ways, um, to transcend their own lives. And one of the beautiful things about books is that you get to inhabit the mind and the body of another person, mm. even if that's a fictional person. If that person feels real to us if the writer has done his or her job. Well, and I've heard it described, which I think is accurate, as one of the most intimate things that can occur, a reader to a writer in reading their work, because as we're reading, we are being as connected and open and vulnerable as we can be, because it's just us in the book. Yeah, it's real. And us and you in the book in, a, in somebody else's mind that you're not in any other context, you know, in any other situation. One of my favorite questions uh, that I get, you know, when I do my events, there's Q&As and stuff. One of my, one of my favorite questions, because it always thrills me, is um, sometimes people will, will ask me about my first book, Torch, which is a novel, and they'll say, so what, you know, what happened to Claire and Josh next? <laughs> you know, these are characters in the book. And, and I always say, nothing. The book ended. <laughs> you know, like they don't exist. They're in that book. <laughs> They're just, they just live in that book. But what's funny is what people are forgetting like they actually think these characters have gone on living, yeah. more things have happened to them. <laughs> I love and, that. And, and nothing more happened. The book ended. But don't you love that? Don't you love that people are carrying those characters around? And, and you know, it's like Barbie dolls or dolls that you used to play with. You put them in another outfit. You kept having them do things. <laughs> you know, they have, the, they have an afterlife. It's the highest praise. In, in my mind, it's the absolute highest praise. Because that's what I want to do when I write fiction. I want people to, to believe they're real. And, and, and when I write memoir, you know, you, you try to achieve that same thing. You still have to make yourself a real person to people and, and, and the people you're writing about. Just because they exist in the real world doesn't mean you've got it made on the page. You still have to bring them to life. And yeah, I do think that that's a, it's a, you're right. It's a very intimate experience. I mean, this is why also not a day goes by that I don't get emails from people or meet people who say they feel like we're best friends. Yeah. I just don't know it yet. <laughs> right, right. And they'll be at your door or they'll be at the end of the line waiting, waiting to have yeah. that conversation. So Cheryl, what are the books that touched your life? Oh my goodness. Well, Alice Monroe is really my favorite mm. writer. She, she is a profound you know, has just been such a profound influence on me as a human and a writer. And, and um, I just love her, you know, thinking about this idea of like making, making characters alive on the page. I mean, I, I just uh, really feel the humanity of, of those people she writes about. Every, every story I've read by Alice Monroe has moved me um, beyond measure. So she's been really important. I, I was really thinking about um, just a, a little bit ago also uh, you know, some of my earliest influences in my 20s, uh, uh, the short story writer Raymond Carver hmm. was so important to me. And why? That's interesting. 
Does that surprise you? Yeah, a little bit. Really? Yeah, no, my son Carver is actually named after Raymond Carver. Um, no, yeah, I, I've always been, I mean, so, like, just drawn to his work. I think that that his, part of it was, like, he writes about working class people, yeah. you know? And when I was in my 20s, I, I grew up poor, I grew up working class, and those were the people, the people on those pages were people I really recognized. And, you know, I loved his ability to just get to that that the heart of things in a very direct uh, fashion. I love realism. You know, I'm really a, a, a realist writer. Toni Morrison's novels, when I was in my 20s, The Bluest Eye, and Beloved came out in that decade. And I list Bluest Eye as one of my top 10 books ever. Yeah. Of all her books, too. Yeah, it really changed my, well, there again, not just my sense of a, like what a writer could do, but also who I was in the world. There were so many mm-hmm. things in that book as a white person I hadn't had to contemplate or know. And, you know, I love that, you know, the, the, I, I do think that, you know, obviously, you know, we're we're always learning about the world and ourselves through literature. And, and that was a really influential one for me. That book switched a gear in my brain, Bluest Eye. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, it sort of turned the kaleidoscope. I saw the world slightly differently after reading me that too. book. And, and I liked Raymond Carver for the same reason. I'm the child of immigrants and lived a very working-class life for a long time. Um, but I was fascinated. Wasn't there a controversy about his editor as the one who sort of rewrote his books? Yeah, there was some. I, I never, I mean, there, there's always, I think that it was that his editor was quite heavy-handed. Mm. But, you know, you don't, you know, Raymond Carver didn't become Raymond Carver because... He was edited. Because he was edited, right. It was there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I remember that that whole conversation, and I read. I think the New Yorker published these side by side things of the, you know the before and after. Right. And stuff. You know, I, I still think Raymond Carver is who he is, and he's the phenomenal writer. He he. I mean, his work still lives, and still, I think you know that, that's what I mean when I said I was thinking about him recently, as I was revisiting um, some stories that I hadn't read for a while. You know, you have those writers. You know, some of these books that I say I love and, and these writers I love, some of them, you know, I read them so much in my 20s that I kind of moved on. And it's fun to go visit, revisit them and see what they feel like now, how they land now. And did they still work for you? Yes. The people I really love, yeah, still work for me. Um, Mary Gateskill was another very big one for me mm-hmm. um, in, in my developmental years, um, you know, just really learning how to write. I learned how to write by reading and, um, I had some great writing teachers along the way. Uh, I got my master's in fine arts and creative writing and fiction writing, actually, at Syracuse University and was mentored by George Saunders and Arthur Flowers and Mary Caponegro and also worked with Mary Gateskill, actually, um, which was like this amazing, you know, exciting dream of mine because I had learned so much from her, um, you know, before I went to Syracuse. So those people all taught me so much as teachers, but where I really learned is, you know, just reading other writers on the page and, and not just the people I've named, but so many. Yeah, writers. dozens, I'm um, sure. Yeah. Where, and you just, you know, I always just studied those sentences and studied those scenes. And, you know, how do you start a chapter and how do you end a story and how do you get people in and out of a room? You know, and all of that is just right there, you know, um, right there in the books on, on your shelves. You know, Cheryl, you you're talking about Raymond Carver is reminding me. So I have not reread him. I think I read everything he wrote back. I must have read it in my 20s or 30s. So that would be almost 40 years ago. If that's, I guess that's right. But 
it, it, no one reads him anymore. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to reintroduce his books in our bookstores. Great. We're going to resurrect him. I think that he does not, he has not had the lingering appeal uh, that he deserves. We must read similarly because Alice Monroe is the other one, like William Trevor, who are at the very top of my list because I love how they use spare language to talk about lives that seem simple. Yep. And in fact, are enormously complex. Enormously. William Trevor is so, such a master. I mean, and, you know, I think that sadly, I mean, part of that you're saying people don't read Raymond Carver anymore or as much anymore um, is, you know, he's, he died young and um, he's yeah. not here to keep producing work and keep, uh, you know, you know, sure. uh, stay, staying in the current conversation the way like Alice Monroe. I mean, I know it's now been a, a couple of years since her last book out and, and she did, I think say that would be her last book, but, but, you know, she's still, you know, all these years has been publishing, right. You know, we, yeah. So it stays front and center. That's right. And Ray McCarver, he died, I think it was 1988 and he was in his forties. I mean, he died in middle age in early middle age. And, you know, I think also that there was such a thing in the eighties and, and 90, you know, early nineties about like, you know, Raymond Carver, he was the short story guy, you know, that as with any kind of like popularity, it's like, then it becomes like, there's like a backlash that like, oh, we, Mm -hmm. you know, that's so, that's such a cliche to, to be reading him. Let's move on to somebody else. I mean, there are, there are those like trends, literary trends, if you will, um, that really aren't about like the quality of the work. I loved in Wild where you talk about your mom loving Michener. Yeah. And then you were in some cabin somewhere and you could trade, you traded one of your books uh, for a Michener book and how you were always dismissive of your mom for thinking that that was, you know, good literature. And then, of course, James Michener is a fantastic storyteller. Yes. I mean, that's, what right. is, that's the snobbery of youth. And all I can say yeah. is, Thank goodness I got over that pretty young. Um, yeah. You know, there's there really is no greater snob than a graduate student, for example. <laughs> like, I mean, I just yeah. and I, I I always feel sorry for people when I meet people in their forties and beyond who are still snobs. I just think, oh, you little that like you poor person, because what you did is you made your world small. Well, I think about that as a bookstore owner. When I opened the bookstore almost thirty years ago and came from a totally other profession. I've always said to our booksellers, A, you could judge a book maybe by its cover, but not a person coming into the store. And we should have no judgment on what they like to read. We should just help them find just the right book to read next based on their taste. It's not our job to sort of elevate them or what we think is elevating them. They're reading. That's right. I agree. And, you know, I think, now I don't think that's so true now, but I think that to a segment of the population still, bookstores feel judgmental. Um, and the best bookstores are not remotely judgmental. Right. I mean, the bookstores that I frequent, uh, you know, in, in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, um, you know, there is that sense, those booksellers, you walk in and they, it's not what they're trying to make you read. It's what they want to help you connect to that next of thing. Of course. They're amazingly good at it. And I love I love that. And, 
you know, and you're right about Mitzner. The, you know, the other thing too is I think that um, reading, you know, no matter what you what, what you're reading, like just the fact that you're a reader um, is a beautiful thing, and it also exactly. offers, you know, it's a gateway to the next thing. You know, I read right. Mitzner. I mean, my, you know, my mother, uh, you know, when when I was growing up, she would always be reading these Mitzner books, and you know, I read a couple of them, and then I was, and then I went to college and was told that, like, in fact. It wasn't okay that that was my favorite book, you know? and then I quickly right. adopted that same opinion. That's not real literature. That's not a real book. People would say. Speaking of your mother, you know that is now. I haven't seen the movie. I might be the only person on the planet, but <laughs> you know the vividness of how you describe her and your relationship with her in Wild was not only dear and loving and exquisite and made me want to meet her. And I know you have two kids now. What what do you think are some of the most important qualities of her as a mother that you've been able to adopt and translate into being a parent? Uh, a couple of things just immediately leapt to mind. The first one is love. My mother's mm. ease and, and great capacity to express love. There was never any sense of withholding, um, mm. you know, and, and this is what we want. I mean, it's, you know, we're it's born we want. to be loved. And, and you know, some people are born to parents who, who, who really struggle with um, expressing that and, and, and embodying that and being that. And my mother was loved. And that sense of mm. just tremendous warmth I, in Wild, I say, you know, she... She every day, you know, she she worked her way through her entire reserve of love. You know, it's always she gave it all to yeah. us every day. That doesn't mean she was like perfect and like always doing the you know the whatever we think these you know idealized mothers we have in our minds were doing. But she loved us, and there was that was never and we felt insecure about that. And neither did my siblings. So there's that, and there's also my mother's tremendous optimism. Which, as a teenager, I was like, oh, mom, you're so, you know, eye-rolling at her about her, <laughs> you know, telling me things like, you can always find beauty in the day. There's always a sunrise and always a sunset, and it's your job to be there for it. If you want good things, you have to find them, and they're there, no matter what is happening. It took me until after her death to truly learn that lesson, but she was right, and, and she made life magical. You know, one of the things I, I write about in Wild is how she did, you know, there was a sense of always abundance in my house. I grew up in poverty. Yeah. All of the years of my childhood, I lived, my family's income level was below the federal poverty line. And I would not tell you that I had a poor childhood. My mother would always say, we're not poor because we're rich in love. And there again, I didn't know how mm. right she was. And meant it. Yeah. And meant and, it. And, and also made it. I mean, we, I had a great, mm. I mean, it's so funny because of course I, you know, had an abusive father and I mean, I had all kinds of terrible things happen to me in my childhood. I was sexually abused, you know, all of these dark things, but I really, when I look back on my childhood, I, I, I do really think, oh, you know, on the whole, I had a, a pretty beautiful life. I had a pretty beautiful childhood. And that was because of my mother. Yeah. So what I'm fascinated by when you hear stories of those that overcome circumstances, because you could also be telling the story of the circumstances in which you grew up, despite your mother's love, where the impact of the negative things just wore you down, 
you know, rearranged your brain in a way that it made it difficult for you to ever find happiness. So you have two siblings. Are all of you as resilient and positive thinking as you are? Or did they sort of chemically react to the same set of circumstances in a different way? They reacted differently. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, that's a hard, sad part of my life. And, you know, I I love my siblings and um, they're both really good people. You know, I don't want to invade their privacy, but, you know, there have been struggles that are absolutely and deeply and profoundly connected to, like I said, some of the darker parts of our childhood. You know, but what's really interesting, even, even amid those struggles, you know, my mother's light does shine in their lives as well. And, and I think that there's this wonderful George Eliot quote from Middlemarch that, that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but, but, you know, essentially it's, it's, it's this idea of like, you know, there are so many people who've lived ordinary lives and, and now lie dead in our unmarked um, graves, but you know, that by sheer fact that they existed really and made, made, you know, life better for me and you. And I do think of my mom in that way, you know, that even in times, for example, that my brother had struggled, that, that my mother, you know, and the, and the way that she loved him and the things that she gave him have made him better able to find his way through some of his deepest struggles and my sister too. That it would be even more difficult yeah. without yeah, that. Yeah, but I mean, and, and that's it too. This goes back, your question about my siblings and me, and it really goes back to one of the first questions you asked me, which is like, you know, how did I become who I am? And you know, how did you become who you are? And how did any of us become? And in part, you know, and, and the, the answer is that it's a mix of the things that happened to us and, and the people we were born to be. That there was, there, for whatever reason, I always found this space in, in writing and in literature. And I do think that that's what saved me. There was something that, that, that is the unbreak, unbroken thread of my life. And I think that it led me to, I mean, I think writing is an innately healing practice, whether I'd ever published a word or not, that it, it has allowed me in so many ways to, to be resilient. It, is, it has allowed me to find a way out of my own struggles or hardships. And my siblings don't have that. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, I, I don't think I thought about that. I'm the oldest of six. Uh, my parents are Holocaust survivors. And we've all reacted differently, but I'm the, it'll all work out, the optimist. And I too was a reader. My parents read to me when they couldn't read English and just read to me phonetically. Uh You know, it's an interesting question about whether reading is, among its other brilliant attributes, is its capacity to build a kind of resilience. Right. You can see other people on the page doing it. I hadn't it. thought about that. I mean, because you see examples of people overcoming uh-huh. circumstances. Absolutely. So, Cheryl, who do you turn to for advice? My husband, foremost. He's he's this fabulous person. I've been um, married to him. We, we've been together about 22 years and been married for 17 or 18, 18 years, <laughs> just doing the math. And, um, you know, he's he's my great counsel and my best friend. I also have so many really good friends. I also turn to literature. Mm. You know, I, I, I really do think of, you know, literature as my religion. I often will find consolation and comfort in words. You know, I wrote about in Wild how I carried Adrienne Rich's book, The Dream of a Common Language, with me the whole hike. And it was because I felt like there was something in that book that, were, that, that, that you know, was a kind of sacred text 
to me. And so I turned, I turned to books and I turned to people and, and sometimes I turn to strangers. You know, I think that that's the beautiful thing about advice is that we forget, you know, there is no one, you know, wise voice that, that is always going to be the voice of wisdom for us. There's no, there's no right. um, one source of good advice. Sometimes it, uh, you know, the most casual thing you'll, you'll see or hear from, a, you know, somebody you don't even know, somebody from a kid, you know, might blurt something out and you think, you know what, that's a good point. <laughs> and then onward you go. Cheryl, you know, one of the things when I was reading Wild and I thought, you know, like I am sure like millions of people who read the book, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe she's going to do that. She's going to get hurt. They're not going to be, you know, I was like worried about you, you know, the whole time. I mean, I knew you were alive at the end of it, so I, (laughs) I wasn't like panicked, but I wonder what role your own optimism and sense of humanity get people to react to you. You know, and I think about it most acutely on the trail where, you know, you were hitchhiking and you were with strangers and trusting people. I think about that night you went to go join uh, sort of early in the trip. They were yeah. three guys that you went and joined and had dinner with them. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's <laughs> a good idea, Cheryl, for you to be doing that. But do you think, to what extent do you think your own expectation that will that people will be good contributes to their being <laughs> that's good? That's a great question. You know, I think that there are, there's bad luck. I mean, there's certainly things that, bad things that happen to people and, you know, whether they were nice or not or, you know, I mean, I think that sure. you know, I don't want to attribute too much to it, but but I also I think you're you, you know you, you're right. Of course, I've always been a kind of open, friendly sort. Um, you know, then oftentimes people are open and friendly to you in return. The kindness of strangers thing um, is sometimes contingent upon um, us being kind to strangers, right? And I I think we forget that it's yeah, I do uh, believe that be a, you know there's some reciprocity there. You know, I'm sad that we're running out of time because I've just loved the opportunity to have a conversation with you. So why don't I just close with um, two questions? Well, actually, I have one other question. I was curious. Nick Hornby wrote the screenplay for Wild, right? Yes. How how was that for you, it, having him write your story? It was wonderful. First off, Nick is a brilliant writer, and I've loved him yeah, a long and time. Yeah, and funny. You know, and as, I mean, I've loved his work a long time. And, you know, so, of course, it was a great honor to have a writer I re- respect and admire really be the one who interprets my book for the screen. And then I came to know Nick over the process, um, and he is a stellar human, really just such, you know, he's got such a great mind, but an even more beautiful heart. And uh, I feel like that was, you know, very on every page of the script. And I think that he just treated my life and my book with such care and consideration. I was, I was just thrilled. You felt safe in his hands. Absolutely. That's great. And so what are you working on now? I'm working on my next book and I, it's a memoir and I have to write it. (laughs) And it's, well, I am writing it, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's writing is always, uh, you know, a, a glory. It's always agony and glory, always agony and glory for me. There's, there's no other way to about, around it. It's the thing I, like I said, I feel I'm here to do. It's my calling. And it's also like, the, you know, the thing I most dread, <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of writers have that kind of relationship to their work. I do think so. But the thing I, I'd like to thank you for uh, before closing is 
You know, I think whether you're writing your advice columns or you're writing your novel or you're writing your memoir, the number of people that are impacted by either being comforted or inspired is unusual. You know, lots of writers have lots of impacts on people, and many of us have been blessed thousands of times with books or words or sentences, but you have an unusual capacity to do that. And, you know, as a bookseller, I'm always excited to put tiny, beautiful things in their hands or wild because I know it will make them happy. It will make them think about things differently. So I'm excited that there'll be more words coming oh, from you to make so many people thank happy. Thank you so much. That's, that means everything to me. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.